dream is of course to eventually derive a strategy where we could do brain repair in, in situ in the human brain. That was Professor Benedict Berninger. His lab at King's College London are taking the first steps towards brain regenerative medicine. Welcome to the Science Breakthrough Podcast. Since the beginning of the 20th century, global life expectancy has steadily been increasing. This is thanks to progress in healthcare, sanitation, education, and the fight against hunger. But when this extended life expectancy is marred by health problems like neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's disease, it begs the question, what's more important, quantity or quality of life? In 2023, the treatment of neurodegenerative disorders remains a major medical challenge. Researchers in the Berninger lab are investigating how we can repair brain damage. I asked Benedict to describe his lab's field of research. So the overall field is developmental neurobiology, but the aspect that we pursue is to learn from development to see whether we can reutilize mechanisms acting in development for um, brain repair. To understand these developmental brain mechanisms, I think it's important to lay out some key details about the physiology of the brain. So, the brain is mostly made up of two types of cells, neurons and glia. Neurons are the cells responsible for sending and receiving signals, they're the messenger cells, whereas glial cells provide the support and protection necessary for neurons to carry out their role. The most abundant type of glial cell is the astrocyte which is a star-shaped cell. Okay, so we can picture the inner workings of the brain as a dense constellation of neurons and glial cells like the astrocyte. But what are the mechanisms that occur to reach this stage? Well, the process begins early in embryonic development, when there are a few hundred neural stem cells called radial glia. These cells divide and give rise to neurons and glia, we call the generation of neurons neurogenesis. The adult human brain does not undergo neurogenesis, so when adult neurons die due to disease or injury, they cannot regenerate. I mean, there are some regions in humans that actually debated whether they are actually uh, neurogenic, there's very few regions, but in general, our brains lack neurogenesis, so whenever there is a disease or uh, an injury, we know this has devastating consequences. The Berninger Lab are in the early stages of developing strategies for reinitiating neurogenesis in the adult brain. One method they are investigating for doing this is by delivering transcription factors into mouse brain cells by using a modified non-harmful virus. Transcription factors, which can turn genes on or off, are smuggled into the astrocytes and reprogram them into new neurons. The most surprising thing was when we did an experiment to, 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 to have cells where we were convinced these were astrocytes and then to introduce these factors and see that this t- turns into 
neuron over time by looking at time lapse. Mm. So if you do an experiment where you put the, the you have astrocytes in the culture and then you put something in and the next day you see something or not the next day but seven days later you see something different. It's puzzling, but it's not. You are not 100% convinced that your interpretation that this was the cell that turned from an astrocyte into a neuron is that this process, that this is real. There could be an artifact or whatever. But if you have a live imaging experiment, now where you have a time lapse, where you see how a cell starts out as a glial cell, and in the course of a couple of days, is reorganizing. If this is really breathtaking, and and the most breathtaking thing of this is really to see that this is not that this looks like a real process, like a biological process. So the lab produced a time lapse which showed astrocytes in mouse brain tissue transforming into neurons as a result of introducing transcription factors. This experiment took place in vitro. This is what biological experiments performed in a test tube or culture dish are called. But what about creating a time lapse in vivo? In other words, in a living mouse brain? One of the, the goals that we have is now to do this not only in the in vitro culture condition, but eventually see this in, in vivo in the mouse brain. So that's one of the dreams that we have. And it's just like the very basic seeing is believing. No, it's like if you see it, you can really delineate all the stages between A and Z, then that is really that really is compelling. And, mm. and so you always want to get to this stage that you can touch it. It's very impressive that Benedict's lab have reprogrammed astrocytes into neurons, but you may be wondering, why is all this research being done in mice? Well, mice may not seem very similar to humans, but they do have a lot of genetic similarity. Ultimately, though, the aim of biomedical research done in animal models is to recreate this in humans. This leads us to the next hallmark experiment in Benedict's lab, reprogramming astrocytes to neurons in human brain cells. The number two thing that we had in the lab, which, is, which was equally exciting, is when we could do this the first time with cells which we had obtained from human brains. And then when we saw that these cells would actually fire action potentials, that was amazing. Because at this moment we knew these cells are not just looking like a neuron, but they have actually um, functional properties of neurons. So it shows that the overall approach might be translatable. Translatable, that is, to human brains. The dream is, of course, to eventually derive a strategy where we could do brain repair in, in situ in the human brain. And so obviously you have to start in vitro to show, yes, th this does work with human cells, and then you have to find adequate in vivo models. And so maybe the third experiment that was a really like a um, groundbreaking thing for us was to do a mo more molecular analysis of this process. A molecular analysis of the reprogramming process done in mouse and human brain cells would allow the lab to identify the underlying biological mechanisms taking place. We did, in this case, single cell experiments. And these were very heroic experiments because at that time, the technology wasn't like a routine technology that everybody could do it. So we had to bring cells from one city to another city. And this was a four hour drive. 
and so the cells had to be alive there and then would undergo sorting into single cells so that like every cell could be analyzed in a separate fashion and the amazing thing for me was really to see that first of all was then you can obtain the transcript form of every single cell so what every cell is expressing at that moment so a molecular analysis of the reprogramming process can produce a transcriptome for each cell. The transcriptome is basically a readout of the genes that each cell is expressing at that point in time. And so what we saw was, first of all, I was surprised that it worked. This was already really amazing because you all this logistically um, wake up in the morning, you sort mm. the cells, then you drive four hours and then you put the cells again into this machine to get each individual cell. Then you have to do some molecular processing, which anything can go wrong, no? In the end, after the sequence, you get data which makes sense. That was just breathtaking again. And this was again amazing. So we saw our starting cell population, which was these blood vessel associated cells. And we saw cells at the end, which were neurons. And now the real interest was what was actually lying in between. And there was one population where suddenly some genes would go up along this process, and then these genes would go down again. And then we look at these genes. So this was a list of not many genes at that time, like 40 only, but we look at them and map them where they would be expressed normally in the developing brain. Remember what I told you about brain development at the beginning of this podcast? Neurons and glial cells, like astrocytes, arise from neural stem cells called radial glia. Keep this in mind when Benedict explains which cells in development correspond to the population of cells with fluctuating genes which were observed during molecular analysis. And we saw that they would be all expressed in the radial glia, which is the neural stem cell in the developing brain. So the cell, instead of turning from a, a non-neuron cell directly into a neuron, first entered into a stage where it resembled a neural stem cell. And from there, then started to differentiate into a neuron. The important thing there is, it's, first of all, it shows you that there is a real mechanism behind the things. It's not just happening in a, in, a, in, a, in a totally artificial way. It's like there's some breed biology behind this process. Mm -hmm. So these are the major published findings from Benedict's lab. First, there was the time lapse where one could witness the transformation of astrocytes to neurons in mouse cells. Then there was the recreation of this experiment in human cells. And the third key finding was a molecular analysis of this process which showed that the biological mechanisms underlying reprogramming reflected the processes that occurred during brain development. Benedict describes these findings as hallmarks of the lab's research. These are sort of like hallmarks and, and sort of like this, the moments where, where I would say this, these were the moments where you really get excited about mm. uh, being in the lab. Unfortunately for Benedict, as the principal investigator of the lab, he spends most of his time facilitating other scientists' experiments, rather than conducting his own. He says this is normal for most senior scientists today. 
I think it's getting, it's typical for senior scientists, so it's very difficult to find time to do experiments and also um, really to do cutting edge, cutting edge experiments. You would have to familiarize with the technicalities of every experiment. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the way science is running nowadays is that as a senior scientist, if you're successful in a way, Earlier or later, your lab increases in size, which means that you have lots of things to do with maintaining it at this size. Like you write grants, you mm -hmm. may have to, yeah, you you present the data somewhere, and then you have a lot of admin roles in order to keep things going. And so you do not have the time really to to you can dis you find time to discuss the, the data and the science, but you you don't find the time to prepare the experiment, to do the experiment. I think from a romantic point of view, this would be nicer if we could focus more on our experiments and and do experiments ourselves rather than being trapped in lots of admin work and stuff. Now the problem is that this also means that, particularly nowadays, where you need lots of technology uh, to address questions, where you cannot just do everything in one kind of setting, but you you look at transcriptomes, you look at live imaging, you look at this. The thing is that some of the questions that we address nowadays, they require a larger group of people working together. So why I would why we can complain that we cannot do experiments ourselves anymore the, the way it uh, formerly was? Nowadays, we can address questions in a more global way and we can get more complete answers. And we are not bound to just the technology that each individual scientist can handle. So while it may be frustrating for Benedict that he is unable to do more lab work, the upside is that the researchers in his lab are able to investigate various aspects of their subject using their individual expertise with different techniques. This appreciation of an individual's skills and curiosities reflects something we should think about maybe in society more generally. Every one of us is, is different. And I, I, I always say this in the sense of, of, as a biologist, this is extremely meaningful because you are going to explore different things than me and I'm going to explore different things than you. And I find it always a problem that actually people tell other people what, the, in terms of, I have the vision, we need to explore this. Is There's a problem because everyone has to follow their impulse, which or, or has to follow their instinct, what kind of, where they have to should be curious and where they don't find the time to be curious, or they cannot. I mean, you cannot. I mean, you cannot be curious regarding everything. Mm. But I think there's something that we all have this parcellation that we have things that are that attract us to explore, and and by nature we follow that. And the best thing is we allow every human being to explore that that space, and we probably shouldn't. I mean, there's certain things that might be more important in terms of the social living together than others. But ultimately, I think we should consider them all as equally important because 
if there is a human being that explores this space, it's, I would almost say it's not for nothing. It's, there's a necessity, or there could be a necessity, and we don't know about it, that this is explored. And so it's good that every one of us is exploring things from a different angle and different things. Okay, so that's it for this episode. I hope you found the discussion of the lab's work interesting or inspiring and are optimistic about the power of science for medicine. I hope you also feel motivated to explore your own curiosities, wherever they may lie. Remember, it's never too late to do a bit of your own reprogramming.